I want to tell you um, about a man who lived the first half of his life pretty much all about himself, and the last half of his life he learned to live for other people. Uh, He was special counsel to President Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal. Now, some of you in the room were there in history. You remember Watergate. You're you're old enough. How many of you are old enough to remember Watergate? Yeah, you're old. You're old. (laughs) How many of you you have read about it in history books? Oh, my gosh. That's just back in the 70s. Okay, anyway, um, a guy by the name of Charles Colson was the special counsel to President Richard Nixon. And um, the, the Republican Party got caught bugging the Democrat National Party's office complex and hotel, which was named Watergate. That's where Watergate comes from. It was a building and a hotel. And um, the Supreme Court actually got involved, and the White House had to turn over these tapes, and it was quite a scandal. And the president got impeached, and he actually was pardoned a month later by President Gerald Ford. But you all remember this? Kind of a mess back there in 72, 73, and 74 is when this took place. Well, Charles Colson was the special counsel to President Richard Nixon. And Charles Colson was a Marine captain, and then he was a lawyer, and then he was a you know, lawyer as a special counsel to the president. In fact, Chuck Colson said he would sell out his mother to protect the president. And he probably would have. Well, right before he went to trial, a man by the name of Tom Phillips, who was the president and CEO of Rayathon, decided to witness to Charles Colson. And and, and Tom Phillips said, I've never done this before. I've never witnessed anybody, but I was overwhelmed by God's Spirit to share Christ. And so Tom Phillips had him for dinner, had Charles Colson for dinner. And after dinner, they took a walk. And Tom Phillips said to Chuck Colson, you're just full of pride, and life's all about you. And it's really important that you give your life and surrender your life to Jesus because Jesus is the only way that you'll ever get into heaven. And after that encounter, Chuck Colson, this former Marine captain, special counsel, he was known as the hatchet man to President Richard Nixon, he gets into his car and he starts visibly shaking. And he starts crying. And he's crying uncontrollably in his car because he knew that, that something powerful was taking place in, in that event. And so in lawyer-like fashion, the next three weeks, Chuck Colson decided to figure out whether or not there was any evidence for the historical Jesus. Was there any evidence for the Bible really being the Word of God? And was there any evidence for the historical resurrection of a guy named Jesus Christ? And so in in lawyer-like fashion, he takes out the yellow notepad, draws a line down the middle of it, pros for Jesus, cons for Jesus, pro for Bible, cons for for the Bible, pros for the resurrection, cons. And in, in over three weeks, he said, I was overwhelmed with the amount of evidence the evidence for the Bible being the Word of God, the evidence for the historical Jesus, the, the evidence, he said, for the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ was far more overwhelming than the evidence in any case he'd ever tried and ever won before. And so he gave his life to Christ. And right after that, he, he was getting ready to go to trial for the whole Watergate scandal. And he had been indicted on obstruction of justice. And so his counsel said, just plead the fifth. Just plead the fifth and you'll avoid jail time. And Chuck Colson said, no, I'm guilty. 
I did it. And if I'm going to go into this whole Jesus thing, I'm going in all the way. And so Chuck Colson in a court of law said, yes, I did this. Yes, I'm guilty. Yes, I committed this. Yes. And so Chuck Colson went to prison. He went to Maxwell Prison in Alabama, and he served time in a prison. And while he was in prison, he began to share his faith with other inmates. And there was this stirring going on inside of his heart and his, his body, and he realized that he was pretty good at this. And so he started sharing his faith, and, and prisoners be, started becoming Christians. Prisoners started giving their lives to Christ. And while he was there, even in prison, he started writing curriculum to try to help other prisoners to understand their faith and some discipleship. And then he gets out of prison, and he forms what's known as prison fellowship. Now, Chuck Colson's been dead for two years, but the last 37 years, prison fellowship has literally helped millions of inmates to become Christians. And over the last 37 years, prison fellowship today is in more than 114 countries around the world. Now, what a journey. What a journey for a man when the first half of his life was all about me and the last half of his life was, was all about God. Now, here's something we all have in common in this room. We're all on a journey. Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, every one of us in this room are on a journey. We're on a journey to build something. We're on a journey to go somewhere. We're on a journey to do something. We're on a journey to be something. We're, we're on a journey to make a lot of this or insulate ourselves from a lot of pain or, or hoard or hunker down. But the truth is, every one of us in this room, we're on a journey. And so by looking at a couple of stories in Matthew chapter 2, we have people who are on a journey. We have three different sets of people who are on a journey. Now, can we do better with our journey by studying their journey? Well, that would be the goal. So in Matthew chapter 2, here are three different groups of people who are on a journey. Mary and Joseph. You heard of these people? Everybody heard of Mary and Joseph? Okay. You heard of Herod, King Herod, heard of the wise men. All right. They're all three on a journey. Now, Mary and Joseph's journey, their job was to do what? Protect the baby Jesus. They're going to take the baby Jesus from Bethlehem all the way to Egypt, which is about 150 miles, and from Egypt back to Nazareth, which again is about 150 miles. That's their journey. Now, King Herod, he's on a journey too. And his, his journey is about self-promotion and really about self-protection. Now, the self-promotion was he was a builder. This guy was an amazing builder. He built some cool things. Google it. Look it up. But if you're a history buff, you'll see that he, he was a tremendous builder. But his real journey was about protecting his own interests. This guy was paranoid, he was suspicious, and anybody at all that he suspected was kind of trying to take away his power, he just killed them. I want to give you a list of some people that he killed. It's amazing. First of all, he killed his, he was married nine times, but he, he, he killed his favorite wife, Miriam. Second of all, he killed his mother-in-law. We all want to do that, so I get that, okay? I mean, from time to time, you know, everybody, who hasn't wanted, never mind. Uh, uh, he killed, he kills three of his sons, he kills uncles, 
And on his opening day, when he took office in about 37 B.C., he killed 300 um, of the Jewish, like, like police and all those kind of people because he, he, he didn't trust them. So this guy was all about himself. Now, we got the wise men. Now, how many of you have the nice little nativity scenes at home and they're on the fireplace mantle? It's okay. You can, you can confess your sins. It's okay. We're, we're good with it. And probably the wise men are like in that, but the wise men show up almost two years later. So they're not at the, the, the manger scene. And also, how many of you think there were three? Were there three wise men? We don't know. The answer is we don't know. In fact, his history says we're probably sure there were a lot more than three, probably maybe as many as 30. But we get the three from the three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we get the three from that song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. See, there they are right there. They want to talk about it. <laughs> so what we've got then in this story is probably with all this gold, if you can imagine this, all the gold they're carrying, can you imagine three old men on three dry camels? They wouldn't have got out of Persia. They'd have been knocked over the head within the first half mile. So historians believe there could have been as many as 30 wise men in this caravan and as many as 300 soldiers that traveled the 1,500 miles with them. So 1,500 miles, these guys leave modern-day Iraq, and they come all the way over here. Are you with me so far? We've got three different groups of people who are traveling. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 2, and let's just look through the verses and kind of run through this. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born, let's stop right there. Everybody agrees Jesus was born. There's no historian today who would say there's not a historical Jesus. So again, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, whether you believe in the Bible or you don't believe in the Bible, we have this in common today. Everybody is in agreement there was a Jesus and he was born. And he was born in Bethlehem in Judea. That confused me until I understood there were two Bethlehems. One Bethlehem's seven miles northwest. This Bethlehem is five miles south. And so that's why he says Bethlehem in Judea. He wants you to know which Bethlehem it is. During the time of King Herod, Herod's about 69 years old during this story. He's got gout. He's got gonorrhea. He's got liver issues. He's got lung problems. The dude is about to die, and he's so paranoid that somebody's going to take his power. Wise men, magi, astrologers, astronomers, mathematicians, how many were there? We don't know. We don't have a clue. There could have been as many as 30. They come from the east. This was probably Persia. Again, it's a 1,500-mile trip. Approximately one year their caravan took place. And why did they come to Jerusalem? That's the city. That's the city where religious activity happens. If anything's going to happen cool and exciting, it's going to happen right there in the city of Jerusalem. Okay? You with me so far? It's a lot in verse 1. Seven major facts in verse 1. Look at verse 2. And they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. Now, I think that's cool. I have no problem with God working through nature. God rained down quail and manna. God caused the sun to stand still at one time. God caused an east wind to blow, and it parted and dried the Red Sea. Jesus stood on the boat, the wind, the waves, peace be still, and everything calmed down. So God works through nature. And I think this is cool, God working through a star. We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Verse 3, 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Of course all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Because every time Herod got a little bit suspicious, people died. Right? So they are like, they are on edge. And again, they still remember the 300 good citizens that were slaughtered when he took power. Look at the next verse. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. Now, why didn't he know? I mean, he's the king. The reason that he didn't know is he's half Jewish and he's half Edomian. And what happened is they're all upset because the Romans appointed Herod to be in charge when he wasn't a pure-blooded king. So he didn't know where the Messiah was to be born. And they asked, where's the he asked, where's the Messiah to be born? And in verse 5. Verse 5 is a prophecy from the book of Micah written 700 years before this. Now, this is cool. In this story today, you have four different prophetic books, all between seven and 800 years. Now, if you're not a Christian today, if you're not a believer and you're a skeptic, you just begin to think about how one guy could fulfill just four of these prophecies in one event. It's just a question. Here's the answer. Where is he supposed to be born? He asked, Herod asked the chief priest. Well, in Bethlehem, they replied, for what is written the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, that was 700 years ago. That's a quote from the book of Micah. Are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, look at the next verse. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. So he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. What's, what's he really want to do? Yeah, he didn't want to worship him. He worships Herod. Herod worships himself. The next verse. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them. Again, I think that's so cool. And the star is just guiding them. And the star is going to hang out until it stopped over the place where the child was. Look at verse 10. Where's the place? And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Why? Because they knew God was in it. Verse 11. On coming to the house, this is why we've just messed up your whole Christmas theme with the three little wise men, you know, because this is a house. This is not the stable. This is between day 41 and two years. Now, how do we know that? Because day 40... Mary and Joseph and Jesus are in the temple. It was her 40th day of purification, and they take baby Jesus in there. So we know it's past day 40. So now they had to, they had to get 150 miles to Egypt. I mean, I mean, they're still in Bethlehem. Hold on. They're still in Bethlehem. But it's day 41 to about two years is the time frame here. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him, and they opened their gifts and presented him with gifts of gold, which was a gift for a king frankincense, which is a gift for a priest, and myrrh, which is a spice to anoint you for your burial. Now think about this. All three of these gifts represent Christ. Christ was the king, the gift of gold. Christ was the priest who would offer himself in his own blood for us, which is the gift of frankincense, and myrrh, he's going to die for us. That's, a cool, those are, that's cool what those gifts represent. Verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Again, Joseph's used to the whole dream thing, isn't he? Hey, your wife's pregnant, your wife-to-be is really pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Remember that? The angel woke him up in a dream, said, don't divorce her. Really, what's happened inside of her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
They returned to their country by another route. All right, look at the next verse, verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Get up, take the child, his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Verse 14. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night. I like that part of the story. Joseph and Mary, they're on a journey. And their journey is to protect the baby Jesus. They don't even wait till the next morning. They leave in the middle of the night. And they left for Egypt, about a 150-mile trip. Verse 15, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And by the way, I just want to give you another quote about that. About a year later, at age 70, Herod dies. But what Herod did is he retired to the beautiful city of Jericho. And while he was in Jericho, he had the most prominent citizens of Jericho arrested on trumped-up charges. And he gave the order that at his death, all those good citizens were to be slaughtered because he knew that nobody would shed a tear over his death, and he wanted tears to be spilt when he died. An incredibly ruthless dictator, isn't he? So it was filled what was the Lord had said to the prophet. See, here's another one out of Hosea. Again, about 800 years before this, here's another prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son. Look at verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. Now, I always thought this might have been hundreds and hundreds of boys, but it wasn't a very big village. It was probably about 30 boys, 25 to 30. doesn't matter if it's one. It's still bad. But, but it was probably not as large a number as I'd been led to believe. It's a very small community. Mortality rate's high. There weren't that many babies. So maybe 25 to 35 boys were slaughtered by Herod. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Unbelievable. Go to verse 19. Um, this is, okay, verse 16. This is what was said through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. See, Jeremiah said this was going to happen. Jeremiah, 750 years before this date, said this was going to happen. Look at the next verse then, verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. We've got the dream thing going on again. Verse 20, and, and, the, and the, the angel said, get up, take the child, his mother, and go to the land of Israel. So are you following this? He was in Bethlehem, and now Herod's trying to kill him, so go to Egypt, 150 miles to Egypt. Now Herod's dead, go back to Israel, go back to the land of Israel. Get up, take the child, his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Next verse says this, so he got up, took the child and his mother, And they went back to the land of Israel. And verse 22 says this. But when he heard, this is Joseph, that Archelaus was reigning in in Judea in the place of his father Herod. So Herod had six sons. And four of them got got to rule different properties. Archelaus, if you thought Herod was bad, remember I told you on opening day, Herod slaughtered how many? 300? Archelaus said, I'm going to outdo my dad. And so on Archelaus' opening day, he takes 3,000 good citizens in in there, and he slaughters them. He slaughters 3,000 people on his opening day. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in place of his father David, you bet he was scared. He was afraid to go there. 
And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Verse 23, so he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So Galilee is a large area and Nazareth is a town within that larger area. And so what was fulfilled, what was said to the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Everybody's on a journey. How's your God journey? Are you on a God journey? Are you journeying with God? Now, some of you, the car hasn't even gotten started yet. You're not quite sure. You're not sure how to go about this. How in the world do I journey with God? Some of you in this room, you're in the fast lane. And you're passing cars and you're passing people and you're journeying with God. Others of you, you're kind of stuck in traffic, okay? You're kind of starting and stopping and starting and stopping. You're not quite sure how to go forward. But you're here today because you're curious about about how, how this works. You see, when you journey with God, you discover God. Without the journey, there is no discovery. But when there's discovery, I mean, when there's journey, you will eventually discover. And you grow, and you grow, and you change, and you transform, and you become a different person in God's eyes. Listen to this out of Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. So, so we know God's on our side, right? God's not out to get you. I have plans for you bless you, prosper you. I'm I'm all in, God says, with you. I'm on your side. Plans to give you a hope, to give you a future. Look at the next verse. Then you will call on me. You're going to take a journey with me. You will call on me, and you will come to me, and you will pray to me, and I'm on your side. I'm going to listen. I can't wait to listen to you. Verse 13. And you will seek me, and guess what? When you seek me, you're going to find me. And when you find me, you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That ought to be a memory verse for you. Write that down, circle it, put it in neon, whatever, do whatever it needs to do. But that's your verse. You see, when you, when you journey with God, you're going to discover. And those discoveries are like amphitheater doors that open up for you and new paths and new ideas. The first half of Charles Colson's life, until he was 41 years old, it was all about him. And the last half of his life, he sought the Lord. Look at what he says. God says in verse 14, you seek me, I will be found. I will be found. So how does this work? Let's just get real practical and real honest in the, on, on today. How, how does this work? I think it always starts with a stirring. It always starts with this, this stirring. These are some blanks if you want to fill in your bulletin, great. But if you're asking me how does this work with people, I think there's a stirring. There's a stirring in the heart. When Tom Phillips shared with Charles Coulson that you're full of pride and you need to submit and surrender Charles Colson got in the car, and like I said, he just cried and cried and cried because there's a stirring that goes on inside of there. And we've all felt that stirring. Maybe it was a church camp. Maybe it was a Sunday night church service. Maybe we're driving down the road, and it's a radio program, and we're listening to Dr. David Jeremiah. Maybe we're watching TV, an old Billy Graham rerun. We've all felt that stirring. Or an aunt or a grandmother has said something to us about about 
our need for a faith. Every one of us in this room who've given our lives to Christ, it all starts with this stirring. There's something there. There's something more. There's, there's something to all this. God is really real in our lives. And it goes from the stirring then to some conversations in our head. We're not quite sure what to do with the stirrings because was that God or was that Taco Bell from last night? We're not really sure. So we begin then to have the conversations and we say, well, gosh, if I, if I seek God, will I be able to be faithful? If I really turn my life to Christ, will I, will I be able to carry it out? That's the word repentance. I change my mind. Will I be able to do this? And in our conversations in our head then, we kind, of, we kind of pull the emergency brake a little bit because people around us know our past. People around us know our weaknesses. People around us know when we've snapped and we've, we've betrayed and we've lied or we've stolen. People around us know our, our story. But there's this stirring going on. I don't know what to do with the stirring. And so I got all this stuff going on, these conversations into my head. And then it begins, we have, we have discussions. We have discussions then with other people, family, friends, coworkers, and these discussions are, hey, tell me about your faith. And we kind of play it cool, you know, I don't know much about God, don't know much about church, but do you, do you really pray? Does that prayer thing really work? And, and you, you, you ask somebody who's at mile marker 22 when you're at mile marker 2. You ask somebody, and you begin to have some spiritual discussions with people in your life who are ahead of you. And people who are ahead of you confirm the stirring. And now you've still got the conversations going on, but I got the stirring and I got confirmation from my discussions. And then it comes down to a decision. I got to make a decision. I got to make a decision. And the decision will always be one of three categories. It will either be Herod, it will either be the chief priests, or it will either be the Magi. It will be one of the three. Herod was anti-God. The chief priests were indifferent to God. And the Magi were all in. I'm all in. The Magi took a year on camels, a whole caravan, 1,500 miles. And, the, and your, your decision, your response will always be, I'm, I'm against it. I don't really care, like, like the chief priest. Or, or thirdly, I'm all in, and I'm going to worship him. I'm going to surrender to him, and I'm going to serve him. Everybody makes a decision. And then you're on your way. You're on your way. You're, you're on a journey with God. You're, you're learning to seek God. Sometimes it's two steps forward and a half a step backwards, but you continue to seek him. Friends, that's why we're doing the Walk Through Bible Conference next weekend. As a church, we're subsidizing half of this because it's a great investment. It's why we do connect groups. It's why we do different Bible studies. It's why we do these different grow studies. It's why I'm always trying to get you to read your Bible and pray. And, I mean, it's not that we got something better to do. That's the, we know that's the best thing for you to do. So you're on your way as you grow in your relationship with God. So as we wrap this kind of up today, I've got four more points I want to share with you that don't necessarily fit in a great order, but they all fit with this story, and I'm going to share all four of them, okay? You see, here we've got Matthew, a Jewish tax collector who's writing to a Jewish audience. The whole book of Matthew is written to the Jewish audience to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, 
But the very first thing that he does in the second chapter is he's got all these guys coming from Persia, from all over. You couldn't get about any further away. This is like halfway around the world to them, okay? Persia is 1,500 miles away? That's a year traveling. So here's point number one. It's a worship of a king by all nations. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. You've got these Gentile Persians who were coming to find God, to find the Messiah. And we see that revelation, even by the Jewish tax collector Matthew, that this is a story for all people. And God's working today all over the world. God's doing a great work today all over the world in helping people to become Christians. Number two. Look at point number two. A search is necessary for there to be a discovery. In, in order for you to discover, you, you have to search, and I can't help you with that. I, well, I can help you with that, but ultimately I can't. All I can do is kind of serve the food. You have to pick up the fork and you have to eat it, okay? So, so in a sense, we can assist you, but on the other hand, this is what you do in your own time. This is what you do tomorrow morning. This is what you do on Tuesday. You begin to search for God and pray to God and, and, and connect with your Heavenly Father. Number three, point number three, a response is contributing. When these guys got there and they traveled for a year and they went 1,500 miles the first thing they did was they gave Jesus gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I think this is just a natural response to being on your way, that you contribute. And so everybody who is seeking God needs to contribute. Everyone needs to contribute financially, prayerfully, service-wise, smiles, encouragement, loving people outside our church, in the community. Everybody contributes to the kingdom of God. And then lastly, it always responds with this, with overwhelming joy. When you discover him, you're like, wow, that's so cool. I didn't realize that. Oh, I didn't know God could do that. Oh, that, that touches my life. That changes my life. That changes my journey. You see, a, a discovery leads to overwhelming joy. And that's exactly what happened to Charles Colson. Listen to what Charles Colson said. This is right before he died. Charles Colson said, I've never looked back. I can honestly say that the worst day of the last 35 years has been better than the best days of the 41 that preceded it. That's a pretty bold statement given my time in prison, three major surgeries, and two kids with cancer at the same time. But it's true, he wrote. When they got there, they worshipped the king. A journey leads to a discovery which always results in overwhelming worship. So we've got one song right now that we want you to stand and sing and worship with all of your heart.